Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Well, markets in general are pretty calm, at least if you look at the United States. Look elsewhere, not so much. In particular, I'm talking about Argentina, which today asked the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, to expedite an already agreed upon credit line, the payments of $50 billion still out there. Uh, joining us now to talk about emerging markets and specifically some of the troubled child uh, children within them. Damien Sassauer, Chief Emerging Markets Credit Strategist here at Bloomberg Intelligence. Damien, what do you make of Argentina at this point, basically asking for help with their currency falling to a record low versus the dollar? Yeah, well, I mean, Argentina's been trading heavy for a very long time now. I mean, technicals have improved, but again, I'm not convinced it's all clean positioning here. I mean, its fundamentals remain very, very weak, declining GDP. I mean, it's going to enter its second recession in as many years uh, this year. Uh, rising interest rates. I mean, interest rates have literally doubled. I mean, I think dollar interest rates in Argentina now are are hovering around 10%. Uh, you're in the high 20% if you look at local currency rates. So yeah, no, I mean, rising inflation, weak externals. There's a lot not to like about Argentina. But interestingly enough, the past 48 hours, I've received some interesting calls from investors, particularly uh, event-driven investors who are actually looking at current levels and perhaps looking to get involved, which may be a sign that you know things might change. Mm. Uh, the reason I say mm is because, <laughs> wait a minute, when, when, when this election took place, when, when we got the new president, Macri, I, re I remember distinctly people beating the drum saying, this is different. You've got to get in. Argentina is going to be the best place to invest money. Oh, come on. Well, I mean, you're right, Pim. I mean, look, I mean, if you look at going into March of this year when EM sort of melted down, it was the largest overweight in emerging markets, according to JP Morgan's positioning survey, right? right? So people were definitely long and wrong. And I think you're up, you make a very good point. You know, people who held on on the way down in the last few months, it's going to be very difficult for them to reload at current levels. Well, I'm right. just talking about credibility. Well, yeah, right. What credibility do they have when they are dealing with the second recession in two years and having defaulted, what, five well, times in the past century? Well, I, I would I would argue the other, I would say they, they've made quite a bit of progress in structural reforms. They've liberalized their FX rate. They've reduced export duties. They've cut fuel subsidies. I mean, they've reestablished ties with global capital markets after being in the black for 10 years. But um, but you're absolutely right. You know, um, but they it, want $50 billion from the International well, Monetary Fund. Well, I mean, look, the government, if the, I, think, I think the government would be better served if it put disinflation efforts aside, engineered a controlled real depreciation of the peso with the intention of, again, boosting external competitiveness, attracting FD FDI and, and reducing the fiscal deficit. And I think that 50 billion IMF line goes a long way toward giving them the support they need and the credibility they need to put through, you know, to, to, to actually do that. Unlike Turkey, right? I mean, Turkey, you know, has shunned the IMF. They've shunned their Western investors. You know, Argentina's taken a very different tact. And yet Argentina five-year CDS is trading above 600 basis points and Turkey's only at what? 480. So where's the disconnect there, right? I mean, I would make the case that perhaps Argentina looks relatively attractive at current levels. 
Interesting. I, I think that right now, I, I want to broaden out a little bit. Argentina is an idiosyncratic story for sure. Uh, Turkey as well, both of them seeing distress. But at a time when a number of pretty big asset managers have gotten burned very badly uh, based on Argentinian and uh, Turkish sell-offs of assets, you have to wonder, is this going to lead to a broader risk-off in EM just because burned once, burned twice? uh, How many times can these people get burned before they just say, forget it, I'm going to cash? You know, I don't want to play the this time is different story with Argentina because, you know, we've lived through Argentina. I mean, we EM guys have lived through Argentina for the better part of our careers. But, you know, while the pesos plunged, and rates have surged. Um, you know, thus far, Argentines remain quite confident in their banking system. They've not withdrawn deposits as they have in, la- in, in previous crises, like we're seeing in other places like Turkey. And, and, and look, I mean, cross-border market funding and liquid assets remain ample in both dollars and pesos in Argentina. So the banking system remains, you know, relatively healthy. So you don't see uh, contagion either within Argentina or more broadly in emerging markets? I think I think Turkey and Argentina have, I mean, look, they're a very small part of the emerging markets, you know, and so far, yeah, we've been relatively, I guess, fortunate that we haven't seen contagion. It's not China. It's not, you know, it's not even Brazil or Russia. Um, but, you know, I, I, I take your point, you know, as things, you know, get worse. And, and look, performance is, perception is reality. So long as performance remains, you know, low and poor, um, you know, th- you know, this will eventually slip into the real economy. You know, the longer that, you know, these economies fail to perform, the longer that they, you know, they're mired in this weakness, you know, things are going to get more and more challenging. And and so you're right from that perspective, but we're not quite there yet. Um, I, I still think that, you know, Argentina, you know, can can manage their way out of this. Turkey's a different story, but Argentina, you know, I, I, I think it current levels, it's starting to look a little bit attractive. I sense a trip to Buenos Aires in the future (laughs) for Damien Sassauer. You never know. Damien Sassauer, thank you very much. Chief Emerging Markets Credit Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, giving us the lowdown on investing in emerging markets. Canada's Foreign Affairs Minister Krista Freeland is meeting in Washington, D.C. with her U.S. counterparts. This comes a day after U.S. President Donald Trump announced a deal with Mexico on trade. And, of course, Canada was absent from those U.S.-Mexican discussions. Here to tell us more about this three-way complicated trade agreement, is Antonio Ortiz Mena. He is a senior vice president for Albright Stonebridge Group, ASG. Formerly, he served for eight years as head of economics affairs at the Embassy of Mexico in the United States, where he advised U.S. companies with a presence in Mexico, as well as Mexican companies uh, doing business in the United States. Uh, Ambassador, thank you very much for being with us. Can you tell us what is so terrible about, if indeed that is so, Canada not being part of the negotiations between the United States and Mexico, and then why would Mexico have those negotiations solely with the U.S. if indeed having Canada there was so important? Yes, uh, thank you for the uh, invitation and glad to share my views on that. Uh, First of all, I would say that even though uh, Canada was not at the table over the past uh, two months, let's say after the G7 summit in Canada, (laughs) uh, where there was a fallout uh, between Canada and the U.S., 
Canada was, in a way, uh, participating in the negotiations, above all with great consultations between Mexico and Canada. And Mexico was dealing with the U.S. on some pretty contentious issues. I would say chief among them, the automobile rules of origin. And once that was settled, it was pretty easy for Canada to buy into that and then to deal with issues that are more three-way uh, challenges rather than bilateral issues. So that's where we stand. But uh, the clock is ticking from now until uh, Friday, and I don't know what will happen. Has a lot changed, really, between the U.S. and Mexico? I mean, is this deal likely to stick, and is it really that different? Um, well, there, there are open questions. First of all, will it be bilateral or trilateral, we will know by Friday. And this is not trivial, because under U.S. Trade Promotion Authority, the Congress delegated authority to U.S. negotiators to update NAFTA, to modernize NAFTA, not to do a bilateral deal with Mexico or even another bilateral deal with Canada. So so some members of the House and Senate are questioning whether uh, USTR has authority to submit a bilateral deal with Mexico. That's on a sort of legal, technical perspective. But even more importantly, uh, from a, a substantive perspective, I don't think it would be a, a good idea to have a bilateral agreement. I think a trilateral agreement is much more significant from an economic perspective. So why did you believe Mexico entered into this bilateral negotiation? Uh, I think that uh, Mexico wanted to uh, accelerate negotiations as, as much as possible to see if they could sign the agreement uh, with the current government that will end on uh, December 1st. And to do that, they had to advance on a number of bilateral issues uh, with the U.S. And as I mentioned, the, the main one was uh, over auto rules of origin. So once they got that off out of the way, it was easier to accelerate uh, negotiations. Our guest is Dr. Antonio Ortiz Amina. He is the Senior Vice President at Albright Stonebridge Group, previously serving as the Head of Economic Affairs at the Embassy of uh, Mexico. Uh, and nothing surprising there, uh, Dr. Ortiz Amina, uh, from the uh, Foreign Minister of Canada, that they're having good negotiations. But what what could have changed in such a brief amount of time? Is it that Canada realizes that the clock is ticking and that the United States and Mexico will go their own way uh, with or without Canada? Well, a couple of things have happened. First, you know, the agreement on autos, which is critically important uh, for Canada. Secondly, uh, an important agreement on the Sunset Clause. So the Sunset Clause was an absolute deal-breaker uh, for uh, both Mexico and Canada. So with those two big items uh, out of the way, I think uh, Canada can now deal with some bilateral issues, above all uh, supply management in their dairy uh, industry, and, and then to deal with something that I think will be very complicated, and that's NAFTA Chapter 19, which deals with unfair trade practices, dumping, and subsidies. It is my understanding that Mexico and the U.S. reached an agreement to do away with NAFTA Chapter 19, and Chapter 19 is very important uh, for Canada, both substantively over the endless softwood lumber dispute and politically. So they will have to see how they can uh, resolve that. 
So uh, one thing that I'm struck by here is that President Trump is negotiating directly with Canada and with Mexico, but Congress isn't necessarily on board. So how much clout does President Trump have in these renegotiations when con- Congress ultimately has to sign off and it's unclear how connected they are to, uh, to this whole process? Absolutely. There are different negotiations going on right now. So it's U.S.-Canada trade negotiations, uh, finalizing Mexico-U.S. trade negotiations, and then trilateral negotiations. And then uh, the executive will have to make sure that Congress accepts whatever they uh, submit. And it is not a foregone conclusion that the Congress will accept a bilateral deal, because the authority was granted to do a trilateral deal. Right. Well, yeah. Those are the legal issues that you that you mentioned previously. Now, you mentioned Mexico's domestic political situation, wanting to get a deal done before the new administration of uh, Lopez uh, Lopez Obrador takes office. Canada is also facing an election, and then we have the U.S. midterm elections in November. Do you believe that politics is currently driving the negotiations? Yes, I do believe that uh, politics are, are, are to a great extent driving the negotiation. And my view is that it might be more U.S. politics rather than Mexican politics. And let me explain why. So uh, the uh, upcoming uh, Lopez Obrador administration wants to get the NAFTA issue out of the way to focus on other domestic politics issues and uh, additional, you know, very complicated bilateral issues with the U.S., including undocumented migration, cooperation and security, etc. So it's more of an idea that they want to close this chapter and move on to other things rather than there being a risk that the next Mexican Congress would not ratify a new NAFTA uh, agreement. So that is my view in terms of the Mexican politics. The U.S. politics, I think, are more complicated because the calculation by USTR has to do with the current Congress and what could be ratified by the current House and Senate. If they wait until they have you know, the, uh, a new Senate next year, then the political calculus might change. And what could have been acceptable for you know, the current Congress in terms of the uh, uh, Mexican concessions might not be acceptable later on. So I do have, say, more questions about the effect of U.S. domestic politics on the negotiations and ratification than I do about Mexican politics, even though there will be a change in government in Mexico. This is really compelling. It, it suggests to me that uh, everyone's going to try to expedite this uh, through the process very quickly in order to avoid any kind of political turmoil. That, that is correct. But I'm more concerned about U.S. Right. political turmoil than Mexican <laughs> political turmoil. Yeah. Antonio Ortiz Mena, thank you so much for being with us. Antonio Ortiz Mena, Senior Vice President of the Albright Stonebridge Group. He's also the former Head of Economic Affairs at the Embassy of Mexico in the United States. Joining us now, Alex Wayne, Bloomberg White House team leader. Alex, interesting that in response to this announcement, uh, Iowa Senator Chuck Grassley, a Republican, tweeted out that he hopes that it is not the case, that this is not true. And he tweeted this to President Trump. Alex, what are we to make of all of this? 
So arguably, the president's biggest achievement has been getting uh, judicial nominees appointed to uh, positions in the federal court system. He's gotten uh, 60 appointments to the court system already, including 26 appeals court uh, judges and a Supreme Court justice, uh, with one more on the way, probably. So uh, the Senate Judiciary Committee chairman, uh, Chuck Grassley, is the guy who has moved all those appointments through the process. He's worked closely with McGahn. McGahn gets a lot of credit on the right among conservatives and among among Republican members of Congress for shepherding all these judicial appointments. Uh, and so I think that is what uh, Grassley is concerned about, that if there is uh, turmoil in the White House counsel's position, uh, the, the, the steady flow of uh, judicial appointments may 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 get a little, uh, a little bumpy. Can you give us a sense of the background to this? I mean, Don McGahn is not President Trump's personal lawyer and has said no. he was not aware of some of the payments that were made to uh, people to not yeah, talk about sexual liaisons. Right. So is that related to his decision to leave or has this been in the no. works for a while? No, what what McGahn is uh, is involved in is uh, special counsel Robert Mueller's investigations. He's talked extensively with the special counsel, uh, essentially because the, the the president gave him the green light to do so. And so uh, McGahn, uh, the, the White House never expressed uh, privilege over McGahn to, to to limit what he said to the special counsel. So he's he is believed to have told Bob Mueller's folks uh, a lot about uh, how the early days of the White House worked, uh, the firing of. James Comey, um, Trump's decision-making process with regard to Michael Flynn, his former national security advisor, uh, all of those things Don McGahn was very involved with and uh, and has, has spoken with the special counsel about. Um, he and Trump have also reportedly butted heads over sort of the limits of presidential power. Trump has, uh, I think, asked McGahn to do things, and McGahn has had to tell him no, and that's made the president uh, a little unhappy with him. Alex, Washington is a political town. Is this a firing or a resignation? <laughs> Something in between, I think. Um, it's uh, we uh, we don't know whether McGahn knew this was coming. There was a report at Axios this morning, uh, tip of the hat to them, that said uh, McGahn was preparing to leave uh, either after uh, Brett Kavanaugh was confirmed to the Supreme Court or after the midterm elections in November. But um, uh, the, the president seems to have sort of quicken the pace on that departure a little bit with the tweet today. Uh, so it's, um, I don't know, it's uh, its sort of like a, a slow motion firing or something. I'm, I'm not exactly sure. What is the role of the White House counsel? What does the White House counsel do? The White House counsel defends the White House and the office of the presidency uh, and represents the White House and the office of the presidency uh, in legal matters. The White House counsel does not represent the president. That was apparently a misunderstanding that Donald Trump had upon entering the White House. He, he one, one thing we've we've seen reported is that he sort of thought that Don McGahn was his personal attorney, and that's that's not what the White House counsel does. Going, uh, and, uh, yeah, go ahead. Going forward, who's likely to uh, to replace Don, and does this expedited potential mm. firing of Jeff, Jeff Sessions, as some people have uh, been mm. suggesting this morning? I don't know that it has anything to do with Jeff Sessions, but the guy that is uh, regarded as probably the likely successor to McGahn is, an, is a lawyer named Emmett Flood. He was uh, hired earlier this year to replace uh, Ty Cobb, who had been dealing with uh, with Mueller. So Emmett Flood is now the uh, 
the special counsel, uh, the guy dealing with the special counsel investigation. Uh, he he also handled uh, investigations in the Clinton White House, interestingly. Um, so he's he's not really a, a partisan guy, Emmett Flood. He's just a, a guy who uh, strongly believes in the uh, the independence of the of the White House and in defending the president, whoever it is, um, from uh, investigations both by uh, by by counsel and the and the Justice Department or by Congress. And this would require no approval process. Is that correct? Right. Special the the White House counsel is not a Senate confirmed position. It's not. Uh, it's not a cabinet position. It's uh, entirely up to the president. As far as Emmett Flood is uh, concerned, he's got experience, as you said, in a variety of administrations. Uh, what would be his role in this appointment of judges and in the general role of being a? Uh, White House counsel. I I remember that he was uh, representing at the time Vice President Dick Cheney uh, in the lawsuit that was filed by uh, Valerie Plame, I believe. Yeah, uh, so, about the Plame affair, about the the right. So yeah. conventional wisdom is that Democrats are going to take the House in the midterm elections, and if that happens, uh, the White House can expect a flood of congressional investigations. Uh, every subcommittee in the House with investigatory, investigatory powers is going to be probing uh, one scandal or another uh, within the Trump administration, and so Emmett Flood will be the guy if he if he assumes the job, he will be the guy who has to respond to all these investigations and fight back against them. Alex, if we could just take a step back and talk about the turnover that we've seen so far in the White House and try to draw some sort of implication from it. Is this pretty typical or no. is this uh, a sign <laughs> of something answer, else? Yeah. But, but if it's not typical, then then what can we draw from it? Is it just that President Trump is known for uh, high turnover just generally and this is his style? Is this um, He's a difficult guy to work for? The president is a difficult person to work for. And this is a very tumultuous White House. Uh, there has been a lot, tur- a lot of turnover, more turnover than any previous presidency than anybody's ever looked closely at. Uh, Brookings Institute has has good numbers on that, um, and that's all because of the kind of guy Donald Trump is. Uh, he he demands loyalty from his subordinates. Uh, he doesn't tend to show them much loyalty himself, and so uh, a lot of people come in and out. I want to thank you very much for joining us, Alex Wayne of uh, Bloomberg, uh, sharing uh, some insight into what's going on in the White House. Uh, of course, Don McGahn, the announcement from President Donald Trump that he will be leaving his position as the White House counsel uh, sometime in the fall, based on the uh, tweet from the president uh, speaking about also the appointment of uh, Brett Kavanaugh to the uh, U.S. Supreme Court. Our thanks to, uh, to Alex Wayne. Joining us now to tell us all about the world of video gaming is Ted Pollack. He is a video game technology analyst and the co-founder of the Gamer ETF, G-A-M-R ETF. Ted Pollack, thanks very much for being here. How old were you when you first played video games? Well, I think my parents brought home an Atari 2600 at about age 7 or 8. And have you been playing them continuously since then? Not quite. I have a lot of different hobbies, but it's a great thing to do for your screen time, and it's it's more intellectually engaging than television. Okay. Tell me about the technology setup that many gamers have, because if you're not in the gaming world, you're not necessarily 
aware of the power, the complexity, the vibrancy of the graphics that are now rudimentary when it comes to a game. That's a great point. There's a huge spectrum of, of systems ranging from the most powerful, which will be your uh, gaming PCs made by companies like Dell Alienware, uh, HP, Lenovo, so on and so forth. And then you go down into the uh, PlayStation 4, the Xbox One, the Nintendo Switch. You have tablet gaming. You have mobile phone gaming. There's uh, still arcade gaming out there. You have virtual reality. Uh, just a huge spectrum of gaming. And coming up in the next three to five years, there's going to be a revolutionary change in gaming as we move to cloud streaming. Mm. Cloud streaming is where the game is being processed on a remote server, and all you need is a very low-power processor to play high-quality graphics. So uh, certainly gaming has expanded dramatically, and not just from a playing perspective, but also a spectating uh, perspective. And there's one study uh, that you highlighted that showed that uh, pr professional video gaming uh, just in general, the industry will search 38% uh, just this year alone. Okay, that's the backdrop. Let's move fast forward to where we are right now, where there's some questions, particularly in China, with their decision not to approve some pretty mainstream games. And this has led to a lot of uncertainty. What's the impact of that? How, how significantly should people take that? Well, China, uh, their cultural agencies are very stringent on all sorts of media, and they uh, they they throttle certain certain media titles, certain brands, and they're also very careful about the business models that the game companies are using. There, some of the uh, the free to play models encourage kids to perhaps play a little bit too much, so they're being careful about how they do that. But on a positive note, in China. Uh, there's a game company called NetDragon Websoft that just today announced 600% increase in earnings, and they uh, make educational games. So mm. there's some positive things going on in China as well. It's not all bad news. So I'm looking right now at the geographic allocation of your assets in the gamer ETF. China is nearly 10%. The U.S. is about 30%. Uh, how, will that sh how will that shift over the next couple of years from your expectations? I think that it should remain fairly stable in in those in those allocations. I got I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about any fallout having to do with the tragedy in uh, Jacksonville in in Florida, having to do with those public uh, games. That was NFL Madden nineteen. I think security is important at schools, at music concerts, at any place where people gather, and that. Uh, you know that's really what's going on here. That you it's going to be, it's going to be a, a sort of de facto. That's the operational procedure. Everybody gets wanded. Everybody goes through some kind of metal detector to check for any kind of suspicious. Uh... This this could this could segue into a discussion not about the gaming industry. Correct. And but bottom line is that it, you have to deal with the environment that is out there currently. And the current environment is that when people gather, there's a risk that someone crazy will do something bad. Just real quick, uh, from your perspective, do you expect gaming to be a rival to, say, football in 10 years? On the esports front? Yep. That's a difficult question. I think that when you look at, there's, there's three ways of looking at the popularity. There's, there's participants, there's followers, and there's revenue. 
So certainly the number of followers in gaming, you have a billion people playing games globally, and just a small percentage of that would be a massive amount of people. So I think gaming could definitely rival professional sports in the number of followers. Monetizing that is something that a lot of the game companies are going after, and some of them are doing a really good job. Ted Pollack, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me on. Ted Pollack, Senior Game Analyst at John Petty Research. She's also the President and Portfolio Manager of EE Fund Management, co-founding the Gamer ETF. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.